Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People podcast is offered freely. Everything is free. All the episodes are free, more than 600 episodes and counting. You can listen to everything for free. This is a listener-supported show. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thank you. Hello. Hey everybody, how you doing? This is Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm here in Los Angeles, California, and I have a great show for you today. Leland Chuck is my guest. He has a novel out from uh, C&R Press. It is called No Good, Very Bad Asian. And I had a really uh, fun conversation, interesting conversation with him. He has been through some stuff. He almost died. He got sick and almost died, and then he didn't die. And then he wrote a book and then he started a, you know, a, a press and this book, no good, very bad Asian involved like three years of experiential research as a stand-up comedian. He actually went out and did open mic nights in an effort to try to understand that world and get inside the head of the character and all that kind of stuff. So we talk about all of that and you're going to hear that in just a second. I do want to let you guys know that other people, t-shirts are now available on a rolling basis uh, by popular demand. I finally figured out how to do t-shirts. There's a company called Cotton Bureau that makes them, but, you know, men's t-shirts, women's t-shirts, tank tops, like all the different cuts. If anybody gets another people tank top, will you please send me a picture? I feel interested in this for some reason, but, uh, if you want to get an other people t-shirt, there is uh, a link in the sidebar over at otherppl.com. That's the easiest way to track it down. Just go to the other people website and look in the left sidebar and you'll see a little ad or a little, you know, you, you know how to do this. I put it in the sidebar. You just click it and then you can go get a, another people t-shirt. All right. So, uh, let's get to my conversation with Leland Chuck. This is a good one. His novel is called No Good, Very Bad Asian. Out there now from C&R Press. Here he is, folks. This is Leland Chuck. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been writing 
you know, seriously with the wishes, wish to pub publish, you know, a, a book for a book of fiction for, you know, 20 years, probably since college and was, uh, always kind of convinced that success would come at some point. And I think that's probably the lesson of my life story is that success might not come, you know, uh, at some point in time. But, uh, you know, I, I wrote all through my twenties and through most of my thirties, um, with, without success, without publishing a book. I mean, a lot of close calls, lots of, uh, you know, agent, nice rejections. I remember, you know, back in the day when agents uh, sent you letters <laughs> in, in the mail, like by paper that was actually typed by somebody, you know, I'd, I'd get the long letters, you know, one time a super agent called me on the phone and rejected me, um, you know, all that stuff, like I found encouraging, but, you know, frustrating at the same time, like everything else in writing. Uh, it's always like great and disappointing uh, simultaneously. But, um, you know, I think my first break sort of was to get into the McDowell colony kind of on the first try. Uh, I don't, I don't know why they had me there. <laughs> you know, they, I think uh, there were seven writers there and like one of them was Michael Shaban and the other one was Heidi Julevitz and Sam Lipsight was there. And I was, I was, I didn't, I never published a story, never published a book. And I was like, there must be some sort of mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so what, and you're just there as like a resident just working. On yeah, your... yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember being, just being so nervous when we had to share our work. And so I read from my first novel, which was in progress at the time. And this is like 2010. And I'm like, it's going to happen now. Right. I was just hanging out with Michael Shaven. <laughs> you know, it must be good. Um, and uh, it, Nothing happened. You know, I, I signed with an agent shortly thereafter. I moved to New York. I started working on this novel, which uh, just came out. Um, and did you move to New York thinking, like, I got to go to where publishing is to make the connections that I need to get yes. this over the line? Yes. I was like, you know, I was living a very comfortable life in San Francisco. I was, had been working in tech for 10 years. Um, and my, my wife and I are just like, if we don't go now, we're never going to go. And uh, so we decided to move. And, you know, to chase, chase the dream, whatever the dream looked like. Um, and then, you know, I, you know, after the McDowell colony, it just seemed like everything was lining up. You know, I signed with an agent that seemed like he was really into the first, uh, first novel. And, uh, the first novel being the, my first novel, the misadventures of Sullivan Pong. And, um, then nothing happened. He see, he basically submitted it and, Within like three weeks, it was over. <laughs> you know, he submitted it to like fifteen editors. They all said no. He's like, "Yeah, I'm out." And uh, that was it. That was it. So then it was on to the next book. Yeah, but what was your response when he says that's it? Oh, I'm devastated, right? You don't know. I mean, you don't know how to handle it the first time. Nobody ever tells you, and that's part of like, the, you know, something I think about now when I'm as I'm running my indie press, seven thirteen books, and just to coach you know, writers who haven't gone through it yet, like what to expect, you know, don't expect, you know, uh, riches to rain down like right away, you know, don't expect the review in the New York times, you know, or NPR or Terry gross to be calling just because you wrote a book, you know, a lot of things happen in between. Um, so yeah, so I started, you know, I pulled the book back. Um, I still thought it was very good. So I, um, you know, started sending it to contests and I would place in contests, which again, like gave you validation that, Hey, it's not bad. <laughs> you know, it's nothing like, it's not horrible. Um, and then, uh, that was like five, it took like five years or something like that. So basically, you know, I'd been submitting it for like three or four years to contests and various small presses. Nobody knew my name. I'd never published a short story. I didn't, I didn't publish my first short story until like 2013. 
Um, and I've never published in like huge journals either. So, um, yeah, so you're, I'm working all this time and then kind of late 2013, you know, I get diagnosed really out of the blue with um, a leukemia related disease called myodysplastic syndrome. I guess there are several diff- different types. Well, okay, so that's all. I mean, there's a lot to, to unpack. I yeah. think the first thing I would say is like, what gave you the energy and like self belief in the face of rejection to keep pushing uh, Sullivan Pong? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just felt like, you know, you spend so much time on something. I'd spent like five years. Uh, you know, six years on the book, which is not a lot. <laughs> you know, you realize in, in novel writing terms. And I felt like whenever I read the book, I was like, this is a good book. It's super funny. It's super dark, which I think is probably why it didn't, you know, go go big to the big houses. Um, and, uh, you know, I believe in it. And I believe in myself as a writer. And, you know, I, did, I never had doubts that, you know, good things would happen. I don't think I had doubts until I actually got sick and I realized... I might actually die before this happens, you know, because I'm in my thirties and you're not thinking about all that stuff. You're thinking about eventually something's going to break. Um, so how did you like, like if you don't mind, like what, yeah, yeah. what were the symptoms? Like, how did you get diagnosed? Did you, obviously you started feeling bad. No, I never, I didn't feel bad at all. I didn't oh. feel anything. Um, I was still running like four or five miles, you know, a couple times a week. Um, it was just a routine, you know, medical checkup. Um, and, um, uh, my primary care physician called me up and he did the blood test, like the annual. And he was just like, man, you're, you have basically no white blood cells left. And, uh, he said, uh, right, right. When he said that, I, you know, the, the tone of his voice is very serious. So, uh, you know, he sent me off to a hematologist and the hematologist, you know, did the bone marrow biopsy and he's just very, very blunt. He says, you need a bone marrow transplant. Um, and uh, then he sent me off to Memorial Sloan Kettering, and then it was just kind of a whirlwind from there. They monitored me for several months, you know, taking blood tests all the time. Uh, and then at a certain level, you know, once it got to, a, like, you know, 0.3 ANC, the neutrophil count, you know, like, you should probably go in. And, he, and all this time I'm thinking, I don't feel that bad. You know, I, mean, I don't get sick. I, I couldn't remember the last time I had gotten a cold. It was totally bizarre. It was like a surreal, like out-of-body experiences. I kept thinking that they were, like, lying or, you know. How do you get this disease? Uh, it's random. Like, some people say, uh, you know, in some cases it happens uh, via radiation exposure. Obviously, like, I don't I don't think I've been exposed to, re- you know, it's not like I live near Fukushima or something like, like that. Um, and then a lot of people get it as a, res- you know, as a side effect of chemo for breast cancer, which um, obviously did not happen to me. Uh, bad luck, the worst, you know, damn. So you, I mean, are you in denial? Do you think most of the time, most of the time I'm in denial, I'm living a normal life. And I think, uh, you know, my, because I was relatively young, I was, I was diagnosed at 37. I was still kind of in the present, the present tense stage of my life, you know, not, not having too many plans. Um, that actually, that mentality, I think kind of helped. You know, as I was going through the process, you know, I was very satisfied with just getting a really, you know, having a good day. Um, and and that becomes important when you actually have the transplant and you don't have an immune system and, you know, there, anything can kill you, basically. You know, so I was basically, you know, in the hospital, you know, when I was getting the transplant, um, you know, I was just focusing on, can I have a good morning? You know, can I have a good afternoon? 
have a good night. That's not a bad way to live, period. Exactly. The goal was to open your eyes in the morning and be able to get up out of bed. And uh, I really, really for the whole, like, you know, and it's five years out now, you know, for three or four years, my whole mentality was like that. It was, you know, my goal is to get out of bed. I just want to have a good day. What are two things I want to accomplish today? You know, it's it, your life gets so small, basically, you know, in those circumstances. What was your prognosis? Um, basically, if I didn't get the transplant, I would probably get sick and die in a couple of years. You know, uh, I had no, no, uh, the Death Star shield, shields were down, <laughs> you know, I had no uh, protection against illness or infection. Um, you know, when I, whenever I left my isolation ward, you'd have to wear a mask because I was neutropenic. What does uh, that mean? That means your, you have a, your neutrophil level is so low that, you know, you could catch anything. I don't even know what neutrophil is. I should know this. They're, uh, yeah, they're, uh, they're a type of white blood cell. Um, and basically they're your shields. They're your, de you know, the death stars, you know, force field around it, uh, to protect you from illness. Um, and what's ironic is that, you know, right before I got diagnosed, I followed my wife on an internet her one of her international assignments. And we were in Southeast Asia. We were traveling. Was she a journalist? No, she's a, she worked at a, works at pay, worked at PayPal at the time. Oh, okay. And, uh, she, she had a team over there. Um, so we spent a month in Singapore and we were traveling in Malaysia, <laughs> like all the, all the places that you would expect to, uh, to have problems with like water, food poisoning. Um, and I never got sick. And then I came back, went to the doctor and they're like, Oh, the shields are down. So <laughs> who, like, right. who knew? Uh, yeah, it just goes to show, go, go, go see your doctor. Healthcare is important. Um, a bone marrow transplant costs six hundred thousand dollars you know of which we pay, probably paid a few thousand bucks you know because we had corporate health care um which you know obviously in the in this political season uh is important um yeah i mean it was just a it was a wild experience i'm still trying to digest it all you know like what actually happened I and, always, and I the meaning I, behind it yeah i always wonder like if something like that serious life-threatening where you really were face to face with it you know, it, like if it would, well, I guess it would inevitably change me or change anybody. Right. But the question is how lasting are the changes and how yes. deep and clear is the insight that you imagine you might get? Right. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. are you still a confused, you're still a confused human after all of it? Yeah, or, absolutely. I'm, I'm still very confused by it. I think like, you know, what I was trying to do was, you know, coming out of it, and my indie press 713 books you know which were the number 713 or the was the date of my transplant and grafting and also the date where my books got picked up you know okay so when you say you're transplant engrafted right that means that it took yes yes usually it takes there are rare, rare occasions where it doesn't and if it doesn't they try to keep you li along live and alive enough long enough to uh to do it again um but if it doesn't engraft, you're dead, you know, basically. Okay. So your bone marrow transplant engrafts on July 13th. Right. 2014. And on that same day. On that same day, I'd been submitting, obviously I've been sitting, submitting uh, my novel for ages. And uh, there was a small press in Chicago that took it. Doctor leaves the room. I check my email and, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, there's this note from the publisher saying, I really love this book and 
I'd like to publish it. And what are you, what are you thinking at that point? I'm thinking, well, the first thing I did was I emailed my brother and one of my oldest friends. And I said, I think it's time to publish a book. <laughs> and, you know, it was just a very low key celebration. Um, it was a very good day. I remember because my brother, uh, these are simple pleasures, right? Um, my brother brought my Xbox one from my uh, apartment to the hospital and, uh, actually He's a videographer, so he hooked it up to his these little mon- his little film monitor thing, so that I could play Grand Theft Auto. I, I can't remember which Grand Theft Auto it was, but um, in in the hospital room. So that it it, may, it it was obviously one of the best days of my life. When I, now that I think about it, Grand Theft Auto, my book getting published, and my transplant getting engrafted. Um, obviously, I've had friends tell me that it was it was a moment of rebirth, like you became somebody new or somebody, somebody different. I was going to say when something like that happens, it has to feel a little faded, like fate, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've just been very lucky. I think I'm just, when I think of my entire, and I was thinking this before, you know, I was, um, you know, after I was diagnosed is that I've just had a lucky life. You know, I've, I've been able to find love. I've traveled the world. Um, you know, I've, I've, lived kind of a life of privilege in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I grew up in Silicon Valley. Uh, my parents, you know, immigrated from China. My parent, my parents swam like five miles open water, escaping China and, uh, to Hong Kong in the early seventies. And together, uh, together. Yeah. They talk about it now, like it's nothing, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was something, a lot of people died on that swim. They called them freedom swimmers. Right. Um, you know, they were escaping the Cultural Revolution and the Great Famine and all the, all the turmoil in China at the time. And uh, they came to California and settled in the Bay Area. My dad became super successful. Um, he still works in Silicon Valley today as, a, as an engineer. Um, and, uh, you know, he's 70, which is crazy in Silicon Valley. Nobody works, but he likes it. Um, and uh, so we, we were afforded, my brother and I afforded a life of, you know, relative ease, you know, or just uh, we were driving luxury, luxury car hand-me-downs, you know, in high school. And, you know, they were, my parents are relatively supportive, you know, maybe not emotionally, but like financially, they, they paid for my brother to go to art school and, you know, all, all that good stuff. So we, we were just so lucky in so many ways. But so close to... So close generationally to un- being unlucky. Exactly. That it my, affords some, maybe some perspective that might not otherwise be there if right. the good fortune had maybe been more well, I think, entrenched. Yeah, exactly. And I was extremely lucky to even get a transplant. So like 70% of people don't find a match. Um, they were telling me that uh, my chances of surviving the transplant were 70%. So, you know, back in 2013 and 2014, you multiply those probabilities together, and basically my chances of living um, was a coin flip. You know, it was 49%, right? Seven, seven over 10 times seven over 10 is 49, you know? So I have uh, no idea what you just did, but I believe you. I did the math. Okay. I did the math. So, se- so like 70% of you know, your chances of surviving a, a transplant long-term are 70%. I, I think the first year is like 62% or something like that. A lot of people die from the, from the procedure because they're really sick. And in order to survive the transplant, they need to give you high-dose chemotherapy to basically wipe out your bone marrow, your immune system completely. And if you're already sick and you your immune system is wiped out, you're just susceptible to anything. You know, you could die of, you can die of a cold. What, of, was, your, what was your mental attitude 
Because I feel like that would be important. I always worry, like, I, I, you know, or you think about, you when you imagine these kind of dark um, uh, possibilities in life, yeah. like, and how am I going to deal with it? Yeah. You know, you don't want to be one of those people who's, like, in denial in a way that's absurd. But you sort of have to be mentally tough and to believe and to stay positive. Right. Right? Right, right, You right. can't get dark and just, like, spiral into worry and no, dread. No, you get... Uh... You get very practical and like very kind of like execution oriented. You know, like I'm going to do this today. I'm going to do this. Like, um, you know, I was super happy if I could get on the exercise, the recumbent bike in my isolation ward and do half an hour of just pedaling. <laughs> you know, that would make me incredibly happy. Um, like I said, your life gets really small and you, uh, you know, you focus on the little things, I think. Uh, you know, there were no great, huge, like, com like tearful conversations or anything like that with my family or my wife or my brother or anything like that. It was, uh, it was very much like, Hey, this is what we got to do today. Let's do it. And, you know, trust your doctors, you know, trust that everyone, everyone's kind of got, got your back. And I think that's one of the lessons that I learned is that people don't really the patients don't really fight cancer. It's the people around them that fight cancer for you. You sit around and you lie around and, and say, I'd like to get on the bike today, <laughs> you know, sit around and like, mm, I'd like to just try to get down this can of insure, you know, that's not really doing very much. They say, oh, you're so brave and, you know, you're, you're so tough. I'm like, mm, I don't know. I think it's the toughness of the people around you, right? Which is kind of the whole ethos of the of why I started the small press. It's like writers need help. It's not something that you know. You sit in the room and you write this great book, and then somebody's gonna you know take it to the next level. It's you know I'm sure you saw this with your novel. It's like you got this team around you that are trying to you know that are trying to lift you up, and that's really like so much of you know what life is. It's it's the people around you lifting you up. Um, well, that, I think you just described the fallacy of total individualism, right? Like nobody succeeds on their own, right? Despite people maybe wanting to believe that, right? There's always support. There's always good luck, right? You know, and right. there's always, uh, people willing to sacrifice so that you can go forward and have the success that you want. Yes. Yes. And there are people that you're lifting up that you don't really even know. So I think, uh, especially I started my press like November, 2016, you know, it's right when Trump was elected and, uh, you know, you really, I think you, everyone, many people, I think felt that the country had changed the mood of the country had changed and it had, be, had become a place of like, oh, well, you know, we're not going to help the guy that's standing next to you. It's going to be everyone for themselves. And, uh, I just felt like I needed to do something good. Yeah. And, yeah. and the press, I mean, just in case people aren't hundred percent clear on it. It's called seven thirteen books. Yeah. Seven thirteen being the day that you're right. Again, that you're uh transplanting grafted right. and that you found out that Sullivan Pong found a home. Right. And and coincidentally my second collection, which or my story collection also found a home on that day two years later. That's a good day for you. It's a good day. I'm I'm pretty happy when nothing happens on that day now. <laughs> you know? Yeah it's a big day. One yeah it's a big day. Like definitely last year like July 2018 i was like, oh nothing happened nothing big happened today great it's <laughs> <laughs> exactly what i want maybe you should go to vegas or something i know you seriously play the lottery I just, I just want a normal day <laughs> i just want to watch an episode of succession on july 13 you know and be good 
So uh, now, like, uh, you're feeling good. Yeah, it seems like I'm feeling good. You know, like I said, you never know. I felt good before. But I'm, you know, hypervigilant about health stuff, and I'm, I'm not. My carousing days are over. But yeah, what know? does that, what does it mean? What does it mean uh, as a practical matter? Like, like what you eat, how you exercise, what you yeah, drink or I mean, don't I, drink. Like, for instance, I've worn masks on airplanes for for the longest time. Every, once I started flying, I I never. I never take masks off. I'm, I'm full Chinese. I'm the full Chinese guy. <laughs> yeah, no, no shame. Should I be wearing a mask on an airplane? Probably. Because I'm grossed out. Everybody, by everybody should probably be doing it. Um, I'm always wiping down the tray. Yeah, you know, I've got the got the antibacterial wipes my wife gives me, and um, you know I, I avoid undercooked foods. I can't do raw eggs or like uh, over medium or over rare eggs anymore, and I can't do. Uh, You're not missing anything. Who I, gives you know, a shit? I had them. You know, I, I think about that, you know, uh, it's one of the things that I think has changed about me is like, I'm looking for new experiences, uh, mostly, um, you know, although I do miss like, you know, a rare steak or like sushi, you know, but those things give me problems now. Like I, I had the worst food poisoning in the Bahamas. Like when my wife, that was my first vacation after the transplant, I think it was like two ish years in and I ended up, ended up, we both, we ate a steak for two. It was medium, and uh, I ended up in the ER, and nothing happened to my wife. So, you know, life life adjustments. Um, you know, there are things that I used to do that I that I don't do anymore. Like, uh, you know, I was in Portland, hanging out with one of my authors. He whips out like a, a spliff, and uh, you know, I used to do this stuff all the time. You know, we're passing it around. I just take one puff, and I'm like, oh, I don't like this at all. I'm that guy now. Yeah, no, I can't like, smoke just anything. Full middle age. Yeah, it's just your body. I mean, even if you don't have uh, a health crisis like you had, right? It's diminishing returns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless I guess, unless like you're either made of tougher stuff. Like some people, I think, are genetically able to process these things better than others. But yeah. I think age. It is. It's, you know, it's it's a cruel, it's a cruel master. Yeah. What about spiritually? Like you get into a like life or death scenario, like you did. It's got to make you take some stock. Did you have any thought of the afterlife or did you have any like epiphanies about, um, what the hell is going on in this reality or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, with the afterlife, I'm not spiritual, not religious. I just think that, um, you know, we're, we're the collection of, you know, the, of the memories of the people who love us really. And I wrote a story about, uh, I turned into a fiction story, a fiction story, a story, a short story, um, about the afterlife that, uh, I'm trying to remember where it was published and anyway, it'll, it'll come to me, but, um, basically it's, it imagines the afterlife as a, as we're just these, these images wandering this uh, night on a night hike forever. And, uh, and they, and gradually we fade away as the people, you know, on earth, uh, forget us. Yeah. It's like, I, I was reading something and it like haunted me, but it was basically like you die, like, what is it? You die three times. So you die multiple times. One's when you actually die. Yeah. And then the one is something else. And then the, the, the final death is like when, uh, your name is spoken for the last time on earth. <laughs> I was just like, 
because oh. <laughs> <laughs> eventually that's going to happen. Right. Eventually yes. someone who knew you or cared about you or somehow, you know, your name is not going to be spoken again, even if you're Abraham Lincoln. It happens to everybody, right? Yeah. Um, you know, even famous people. You think about all the books that um, are hot now or like hot a few years ago. You know, we forget them so quickly. This <laughs> podcast know? is going to last for eternity. Yeah, it's a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing. Thank, thank goodness for internet time capsules. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, I mean, that was it. I mean, basically, I don't know. You sound like you were pretty stoic about it all. I was. I mean, I don't, I, there wasn't any, there may be like a few tough moments. I think uh, I do remember, you know, maybe one or two arguments. And then my parents, uh, you know, were not, well, my mom especially was, was freaking out. And uh, she was not ter- terribly supportive during the time. Um, People handle things strangely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I understand her fear, but she was like super into, you know, voice forcing Chinese medicine upon me and all kinds of like stuff she'd read on the internet and Dr. Oz stuff. And I was just like, I just want to listen to my doctor and see what happens. And, you know, things seem to be going well. So let's not, let's not rock the boat with all these like all, all, you know, alternative remedies. Not that I, you know, they don't think they, they have a, you know, a value. It's just, you know, it was too much and she was not, the, 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 as a messenger, she was lacking. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's too much even when you're not sick. Yeah. I think about like health stuff, diet stuff. Nothing drives me crazier because I pay attention to it and yeah. I'm susceptible to it. But the, the problem with it is that it's, it, uh, there's no terminus. Right. You never get the answer. Right. Like you, you can get some, I think you get some basic uh, there are such a thing as like some basic fundamental truths and some, you know, guideposts or whatever. Right. But at a certain point you got to let it go. Like, what should I be eating? Right. Oh my God. Like you Google anything and it's you can bad. say, is it healthy or is it bad? There will right. be confirmation of both. Right. And, uh, and that's the internet. That's the internet for everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It drives me up the wall. Yeah. Like, you know, everything's toxic. Everything's impure. Or everything's awesome for like three days and then like terrible for the next three days and then it's forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's the life cycle right there. Yeah, exactly. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, Okay, so you recover. Like you, yes. you know, your, uh, your count go, your white blood cell count goes back up. Yep. You're feeling good. I'm feeling good. You're released back into the wild at some point. Yes. 
It seems that way. And the doctors say, proceed with your life. Yeah, which is totally weird, too. Now you got to, like, plan for more than the day, which, you know, is, is strange, still, still strange to me. Uh, now I'm, like, figuring out, well, how do I make, you know, this writing life sustainable? And, like, you know, all these things that I did not even think about at all, like, three years ago um, because I was still recovering. So It's a pain in the ass, I think, in some I ways know. to have to plan, like, long term. Like, I don't fucking know. I know. Yeah, I, I got enough on my mind. I got to somehow like map out the next 10 years of my life. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You got to, you know, you got to figure out, oh, how, how do I make, for instance, you're a parent. You're, how, do, how do I make my kids have the best possible day that they can have, they can have you know? Yeah. All, the, all this other stuff. How do I, you know, help my wife have, you know, the best possible day that they can, that she can have, you know, all that stuff. Um, yeah, the, the self is just a burden. <laughs> I don't know. I know, you probably feel the same. I feel like, you know, we're kindred spirits on this based, based on what I read from in your novel. Well, I think that I, like, I think I'm starved for simplicity. I think my intuition or my instinct is that, um, you know, the deepest truths are simple. Um, maybe not in execution, but like in concept, right. <laughs> you know, like if things are ne endlessly complex or, you know, twisted around then you're probably not on the right track is what I tell myself. Right. And then I think that we live lives for most of us anyway, that uh, seem so complicated, like, you know, yeah. just like burdensome, you know, the, the trying to be a good parent, trying to be a good human being, trying mm -hmm. to be a breadwinner, trying mm -hmm. to be a quote unquote success. And what does that mean? And yeah. All of the different responsibilities and demands, um, make it hard to have time to slow the fuck down Yeah, and to just enjoy your life and like take a few breaths. Um, I think especially maybe if you're living in some big mega city, mm -hmm. maybe if you're living in a place that's, uh, you know, more bucolic, it's just inherently slower paced and affords you more opportunities for that sort of thing. Right. But if you're in Brooklyn or you're in Los Angeles, you know, you're really giving yourself an obstacle course. Right. And what I tell myself as a way of like self-soothing is that, you know, a piece of wood does not become smooth by rubbing it with velvet. It becomes smooth by rubbing it with sandpaper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, see, I'm giving myself a hard time here living in this mega city trying to chill the fuck out. But if I can achieve it here, right. then I'm on my way. Right, right, right. So we're all pieces of wood. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now pieces Rubbing of wood Rubbing ourselves. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that needs sand. <laughs> um, so you, you, you published uh, your novel. Like you saw that, that happen. Yeah. That had to feel good. It did. Especially knowing that you might not have gotten a chance to see it. Like that was almost... Right. Yeah, that was a possibility. Right. You might have gone through possible. all that work and then never had the chance to see it come to fruition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's crazy. And then, I, you know, I actually could not really promote the book for like six months because I couldn't really travel. It was like a year and a half after the transplant, so it was a little early. I mean, I didn't get vaccinated again until two and a half years out, so... Um, but I did do a few events like on the West coast and was able to celebrate it with my friends and family in San Francisco and, um, you know, have a, have a good time as, you know, a small, uh, as much as you can do for a small press book. And I tell my authors, you know, to, you know, when they're publishing their small press book with me, it's, you know, you just try to pursue things that are meaningful to you. Uh, you obviously are not going to be able to access, like access every possible piece of huge coverage, you know, get talked about in the New York or, or the New York times or NPR or whatever, but, you know, pick a few things that you can get to 
that you think you can get to and, and try to pursue them in a nice way. It's kind of like, you know, um, you know, things that, things that you will remember, I think, uh, when, you know, when you are, you know, on your deathbed, I kind of, a lot of things like in my life post transplant have been like, okay, well, you know, what, what would I be, what would I think would be really cool if I was on my deathbed tomorrow? That's not a bad thought. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think most people maybe steer away from thinking like that a yeah. little bit because it's morbid and you right. don't want to contemplate your own right. death. Right. I have friends like that and I'm like, what's wrong? What's, what's the deal? I think like, it's healthy to contemplate death. Um, like not, you don't want to overdo it and be somebody who's obsessive. No, 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 definitely. I, I feel like I keep, keep my morbidity to myself. <laughs> you know, I, I know that, that for the people around me who haven't gone through what I've gone through that, uh, you know, it's, it might be a lot to take if I just like stream of consciousness, start talking about what it felt, what I, you know, think about all the time in terms of death. But, um, but I just think about like, I think I feel like a lot of people that, you know, are in with serious illnesses and, uh, are struggling with it and are on the deathbed. It's just a surprise, like how little they regret, <laughs> you know, um, because, you know, their lives are small and they kind of realize, Hey, I think in the most, in most cases, you know, it's like I did my best and, uh, you know, I just want to affect the few people around me that I love and, and all that stuff. You know, it's, it's, I mean, I don't know that many people that have, that have passed and maybe it's because I'm younger that have these huge, like, God, I just, wish. it's not like the movies, you know, it's not like, God, I just wish that, you know, it's not like Rose on the Titanic. You know, I just wish the jacket survived and you know, there was stuff. room on that fucking door. I, know, I think we exactly, all agree. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think, uh, yeah, I think you're right that your intuition is correct that things are things are simpler than they seem. Yeah, I mean, I, we have I think human beings we have a kind of an, uh, a wonderful capacity for complicating everything, right? <laughs> you right. know, and like layering it. There's um, plenty of things to be anxious about these days. Well, and I, I was gonna, I was just gonna say, like, what about fear? Like, we've talked about. Um, I think we've, we've touched it a little bit, but it's a terrifying thing to have to yeah. face, especially as a, especially maybe as a young person, but really just as a person it comes with fear for most of us anyways. Right. And I'm always a little bit suspect whenever somebody's like, I have no fear of death. Right. I'm like, really? Like maybe. Right. But I mean, it's, it's a little scary, right? <laughs> yeah. And, well, you distract yourself from it. I think you're like, oh, I got to do these things today. I got to take a shower with my nurse. You know, that sounds strange. That <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> but, that, but, but that's what happens. Like a nurse comes in and helps you take a shower. Like, I mean, she doesn't like bathe you or anything, but she's there in case like you fall, you know, short outside, um, uh, which is strange. Um, but, uh, yeah, you distract yourself with the things that you have to do to like, you know, get out of bed, uh, and get back into bed, you know, in, uh, in the hospital. But yeah, I think like in the still of night, you know, there are those moments, you know, when it's, when nobody's around, uh, where of course you feel like what's, what's next, what's going to feel like, is it going to be painful? Um, you know, is, is the last thing that I'm going to remember just some horrible suffering. Um, but you know, but you have to, but you have to move on. It's just one of those things. You, there's so many different feelings that you feel as a person, you know, throughout a day and fear is going to be one of them. Fear is just like, you know the joy or the satisfaction of riding that recumbent bike, you know, it's there, there's a certain like a quality through it to about it. They're all, they're all sort of one thing. Um, that said I did, you know, right around the five, my five year mark, I did have an anxiety attack 
or, or some sort of a mild panic attack. It sounded like, um, uh, because I, my five year appointment was pushed back. Like I think like three weeks. So I didn't get the all clear until, uh, five years and one month or, or so. Um, and then right around the five year mark, I had, I had some pizza. I, had, I feel like, I think I had some acid reflux or some heartburn. I started feeling like some sting in my chest and I basically was not, did not feel like myself for the full day and uh, went to my primary care physician and he goes, I think you had an anxiety attack. So there are all these things that, you know, I don't think I fully processed. How can you though? You know, I think a lot about trauma, trying to write about it. Um, I guess like, I mean, it, it's as fundamental as like, well, how do you even know if it is trauma? Yeah. I guess it is, but I mean, it seems like this would qualify. Yeah. You have like a I new, mean, I know my body's been through a lot. Like yeah. I don't feel it every day, but obviously it's been like set afire by chemotherapy. So, <laughs> well, and I think emotionally traumatic too, yeah. like to have to cope with all of it. It sounds like you did a great job, but still, I think part of being successful, if that's what you want to call it, has something to do with being able to compartmentalize yeah. as a survival mechanism. Right. Like kudos to you for being able to, thank you, you thank know, you. but from a psychological, like woo woo perspective, like maybe that compartmentalization is something that you're going to have to like unpack at some point. Yeah. Over time. I mean, I, I've talked to other, my friends, I've, I've met some friends who went through the same process and it seems like they don't do as much as, you know, it's really a choice. Like some people just don't feel like they want to process uh, what happened that much. Um, and I, I did like toy with an idea of writing a nonfiction book about it. Um, by and in, in, in interviewing uh, fellow survivors and they all had different kind of takes on it. Some people were very like, they thought about death a lot and they said, you know, basically what you said, Oh, I don't feel, I don't fear. I never fear dying, you know, despite the horrible thing, horrible things that go on in, in a bone marrow. Usually you're, you're near death at some point, <laughs> you know, for, for real. Um, and then some people were just, you know, I, I don't feel like talking about my life and I don't feel like I'm thinking about what's next. And, like Bill Belichick, you know, for the picture is on to the next thing, you know, <laughs> just like monomaniacal, <laughs> yeah, exactly. just extreme focus on yeah. mastering tasks. Yeah. I mean, you know, and who, who knows what the exact right way is. I think everybody's got to sort of feel it out. Right. 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 But, uh, yeah, I, I have no idea what I was doing. I was just trying to be, trying to be real as real as possible. Were you writing while you were like in hospital? Yeah. I was, I was writing this novel, not in the hospital. Um, I was in the hospital for like three weeks. Um, which is actually a short amount of time. It could be as much as six to eight weeks, or you might not get out, you know, which, which happens to, to a lot of people as well. Um, I started writing pretty shortly after, like it was, I found it really difficult to sit in a chair for more than like 30 minutes and, and type, I would get sweaty and, you know, I just kind of start trembling a little bit and I realized I, my, my body had had enough. And that, that level of exertion was too much. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't get up. I, I'm a uh, eight inches taller than my wife, and we would walk um, up the street. And she would. She's always complaining that I walk too fast, and I walk too fast now. But she would beat. She was beating me. <laughs> you know, I couldn't get up half half a block, and then like it, it, the world just seemed overripe. You know, I, I could just smell everything, and it was summer in New York City, and they were retarring the streets, and I, it just made me nauseous. Like it, it's like you're pregnant. Yeah, kind of, kind of, I, you know, I obviously have never been pregnant, so I'm not, not a hundred percent sure, but, um, you know, they'd be tarring the streets like three blocks away, you know, 
and I would smell it and it would, I would just double over, you know, just unable to, to proceed, you know? Um, but yeah, gradually things get better, obviously. And your wife is there with you through all this. She is. She's amazing. She's amazing. Uh, an amazing woman and, uh, great in a crisis. She's just that type of person. Uh, maybe not so great at like, uh, looking after herself, you know, uh, and addressing her own, you know, needs and desires and, and wants. And I keep telling her to be, be a little, you know, take care of yourself. And, I, I say the same thing to my wife. Yeah, exactly. What is it? Maybe that's the thing with, uh, I don't know. I feel like something has, has something to do with just her as a person and how she's wired, but yeah, personality also, types, but also like, you know, I've seen a lot of it with, uh, being a mother, mm -hmm. like, you know, I guess I do this, some of the same stuff as a parent, you kind of put, you have to put their needs above yours. Yeah. But she does it to a degree that like worries me sometimes. But yeah, like my wife, fam if a family member gets sick, she's on the plane, she's there, you know, right in, in the hospital, like, you know, as, a, as soon as possible. And, uh, you know, basically, you know, with the, with the notebook and the list of things to ask doctors and uh, all the things that you have to do, like logistically and to, uh, uh, you know, deal with, uh, you know, some, some crisis. It's, it's, she's amazing. That's that awesome. That's yeah. a good person to have in your corner. Yeah. Well, I, I find myself am trying to emulate her, <laughs> but not, but not succeeding that, that much or, or not being as, as good at being, uh, on the details and the logistics as, as she is. But you know, it's, you know, she puts on that hat very quickly. Well, that's a, that's to her credit. And I think that what it makes me think of, regardless of exactly how it looks, whether you have the notebook and you're, you know, super like, uh, organized and, mm -hmm. you know, engaged in that way. I think the general lesson f for me would be to move toward people who are suffering as opposed to move away. Yeah. yeah. Some people, even good people mm -hmm. move away. Yep. And you notice that when the shit hits the fan. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm sure that. you probably saw. Like, yeah, I remember people... every friend that visited. And I do remember a few few friends that I thought would visit but didn't. You know what I mean? I mean, especially when you're younger. I was, you know, 37. So, you know, people in their late 30s are not used to dealing with that. Um, and I totally under understand that. But, you know, I'm very thankful for the people who were willing to deal with it. Do you have any feelings of bitterness? Like, are you, were you angry at people who you thought should have been there for you, but weren't? No, no, definitely. No, no I don't think I was angry. It's just, I noticed, you know, not that I, I actually, I tell my authors this as well is that, uh, when they're, when they're looking for blurbs or they're asking for favors from a literary standpoint and they don't get them that they expect, you know, I was like, don't keep score, you know, there'll, there'll be another time, you know, for the, for so-and-so to come through for you. Um, hopefully. That's a very nice, gentle way of approaching things. I hope so. I hope so. I'm one, like I'm grading myself against that. I'm like, I don't know if I'm that nice of a person. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard though. You know, I think, uh, I think maybe that's the best way to put it though, is that you do notice who shows up right. and you notice who didn't. Right. And the best thing to do is to not like hold on to some sort of grudge or resentment because the truth is people who don't show up probably are not doing so out of malice, but more so out of like fear and self-protection. Right. Right. And there are times where you didn't show up for somebody. That's right. You know, I mean, I, th I definitely think about that. That's uh, exactly right. Yeah, exactly. You know, like I think about, uh, yeah, I mean, I think about it in all sorts of different contexts. That's maybe the best way 
that's maybe the the best like mental chess move to make when you're in that mode is to just be like, well, wait, when have I ever been like that? And the chances are, yes, the answer is many times. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, but, I did think about that when I was in the isolation where I was like, who do I want to say sorry to, <laughs> you know, how do I apologize? Uh, you know, if this doesn't go the right way. Um, and there were a couple of people and definitely, did you, did you reach out? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> just write a little See, note. We're not perfect. Yeah. You know, we do, we just do, we do the best we can. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, that, but my crimes were not, I don't, I feel like my, my crimes were not capital offenses. <laughs> you know, most people's aren't, yeah. I still struggle with too much. Like guilt is a weird thing. You know, yeah. like uh, I was raised Catholic. I think like psychologically, that's the way I armchair it, but you got to let it go at a certain point. Yes. It's not doing anybody any good. Yes. You just try to, I mean, I just try to focus on trying to do as many good things as I can for for people, you know, control what you can control. Well, you know, what's past is will be past. So, I think starting that press is cool. I, uh, I'm pretty enthusiastic about the press. We've published eleven books now, and so. it's first novels, first novels and, and uh, collections. Uh, yeah, we make few, rare exceptions. Like our next, our next uh, book is uh, Beth Lissick's book, um, Edie on the Green Screen. It'll be coming out in late March, and. She's published five nonfiction books. Yeah, she's been on this show. Has she? I, I want to say so. Probably. It's crazy oh. that I had to search my mind. I was <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, I talked to Beth. I, I mean, think for 600 people, so. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I talked to her over the phone back when I used to do a lot of that. And gotcha. so sometimes it gets hard because I didn't have a face in front of me. Yeah, it's amazing to get a chance to work with her. I was like a huge fanboy back in the day living in San Francisco. Yeah, she's Bay Area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She lives in Brooklyn now. But um, yeah, we happened to meet each other through mutual friends over a dinner. And she was, she was kind of in between agents. And she just decided to send me her book. And I thought it was great. So. Do do uh, you accept solid, like from, do you select, accept manuscripts from agents? Or is it just kind of like people who've written a book? and We just have submittable. I mean, I get a lot of emails over the transom from agents, from super agents, actually. The thing I don't appreciate least is when they uh email me at my gmail account that uh they know because they've rejected me before (laughs) (laughs) that's the tell right there yeah exactly (laughs) i'm like "Mm, i don't know about this one (laughs) it's called sweet revenge (laughs) Um, so okay so you got the press you got your health uh you got a novel imprint you got a story collection Yep. That finds a home. Yep. And now you've got a new novel. Right. That you did. Uh, something that I'm excited to talk about because it's something I I feel more writers should do, like logically. It, it feels like something more people should do, not only because it leads to interesting work, but also because it leads to um, like interesting work, meaning interesting books. Right. But also because it leads to interesting work, meaning the act of working as a writer become and your life becomes richer. Right. by getting out and doing stuff. So right. talk about the experience, uh, experiential part of the research process for this novel. Yeah, so the book, No Good, Very Bad Asian, it's about a famed stand-up comedian who happens to be Chinese-American. He's named Sirius Lee. Um, and, uh, you know, I did stand-up uh, from like 2010 to 2013, really right up to when I got sick. Um, and... Uh, did that for two and a half years, Doing uh, started in San Francisco. When, when I moved to New York, I kept doing the open mics and took a class at a comedy club, Broadway comedy club, the Al Martin clubs, um, and uh, just was doing it all around the city, any, anywhere I could find. 
and uh, ended up getting developmentally passed at Broadway Comedy Club, you know, probably 2013-ish. Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was probably more fun than I expected. Um, and basically the purpose of it was to, uh, you know, get my own take on what it was like to be on stage. Uh, and la- it was really only after I got up there that I realized, oh, well, there's a, there's like an identity thing like going on, um, you know, where I had to address being Asian like all the time on stage, uh, whereas like a white comic doesn't have to go, oh, well, I'm a white guy. Well, yeah, you know, um, you know, Seinfeld doesn't have to do that. I go, you know, he, I was, I was, would go up on stage just trying to do jokes that, you know, I thought was funny, you know, or were funny that day or things that interested me, um, or jokes that I thought would work and I do okay. But it was almost like I had to address the Asian thing like before that for the audience to really start laughing. It was, it was a strange, strange experience. And I think like, you know, a lot of the comics working today find that to be true as well. You know, that's not, that doesn't say such great things about the audience. I gotta be honest. Well, it's, I think it's natural. Like, um, the, the art of stand up is you get up there and you're looked at and you know, you're looking at somebody and you're sizing them up and you're kind of, you have these expectations about what they're going to be. And, uh, you know, if you're, overweight you kind of expect the overweight joke you know if they you know perhaps you know they look more working class you know you you expect the kind of a working class some sort of like some reference to what you see and i think you know open opening you know the opening jokes are the first part of most sets you see like on your netflix specials usually kind of address that especially if somebody's an unknown and you know Chappelle doesn't have to necessarily you know do that anymore because you know he's he's dave Chappelle, you know but you know if you're an unknown you constantly have to like you bring that out uh and i tried to and that became kind of like a central you know theme thematic kind of like through line for the novel but you don't have to do it if you're a white dude no well you're a white guy if you're john mulaney where you can do you know dating jokes dating as, as a nerdy guy or, you know, dating as a, so-and-so can do dating as a tall guy. Um, but you know, if you're Aziz, you know, you got to, you, you know, you have to do a different type of joke, um, which maybe he wants to do, you know, I, I don't know him. So <laughs> I was going to say, did you me, get like, to know, did you get to know comics? I mean, you, you must've met a lot of comics, but did you get to know any like name comics when you were working the clubs or no, not, the- not, I mean, I would see the huge once on very occasionally, but I w- it was more like the layer of, of people that, you know, are not, are, you know, they hit their ceiling. They're not, you know, they're, they'll probably do a late night set and they'll probably be successful road comics. Um, and they may do it for a few decades because they love it, but they won't become like the household of, names. Yeah. Household names, you know, guys like John fish, um, you know, Chris DeStefano, who's now doing comedy seller. I saw Jared freed. Who's now, you know, doing comedy seller and he's got a new album out. Um, Sean Donnelly, uh, you know, these are guys that are, are up and coming and you're starting to see them now. And that gives you an idea. Like I started in 2010 and I was seeing these guys at open mics. So it, nine years, you know, it takes like 10 years to get good. Um, and it was just cool to be, I saw Emily Heller, um, who writes on HBO's Barry, um, Raquel Diapiz, who I think wrote on John Oliver's show for a while. Yeah. They were and they, she, she ran a mic for a while. Yeah. It was, I got to see all these 
it was funny people, you know, it's it was kind of an amazing experience. And what, what was the, the origin of the idea? Like what got you to the point where you're like, you know what, I'm actually going to commit myself to doing years of experiential research in the field yeah. and I'm going to try stand up comedy. It was podcasts like this one, you know, it was like 2010. It's like, so, you know, one of my buddies like introduced me to a WTF by Mark Maron's podcast. And I was just listening to all this. And I, I was always, I've always been a huge fan of stand up comedy. Uh, you know, I used to love David Cross's work and uh, from the early 2000s and, you know, all the, uh, just comedy in general. I was a big fan. And I think once WTF, you know, came out, I started finding all these other comics and I just became like a real big stand up geek. Um, and I was like, well, what if I wrote a novel? What if I wrote a novel like set in the stand up world, a comedy about comedy? I was like, oh, it sounded like a great idea to me. But everything sounds like a great idea when you're at a writing residency. You know, <laughs> I was at, I was, at, I was, at, I was, at, I was at McDowell and surrounded by all. This, oh, you're a genius! But the, you know, once I got into it, I was like, oh my god, this is this might be a bigger, bigger than I can handle. Um, I think most writers would have that idea and then try to execute on it without doing the experiential research, especially at the level of depth and intensity that you did it. Right? Why did you say to your Why did you say to yourself like I'm going to do this, or if I'm going to do this? I've got to go actually live this life and have these experiences uh, and commit to it for a long time. Like, why did yeah. you? Because I think maybe even if somebody made that call, they might do it like once or twice just yeah. to get the taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You stuck with it. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, um, well, I, I wrote a first draft and I realized there's something just missing about it. I just didn't know like what the details were. Uh, the I knew some of the vernacular just from listening to podcasts and stuff, but I didn't really like, I didn't know what it felt like to be on stage and to get a laugh or I, you get that from other people, but I wanted to know what it felt like for me, you know? Um, and I describe it in the book as like levitation. Um, when you get a really big laugh from a, a, a good sized crowd. Um, and uh, you know, probably like a year, half year, year in, I was like, I'm enjoying myself. I really like writing jokes. It's it's a lot, you know, writing a joke is a bit like writing an epigram. Like, it's not a 100,000 word tome. It's like, you know, two, three sentences with like a surprise. It's, it's like, sweet, this is <laughs> this is a lot. I don't know if it's easier, but I can do a lot more of them and try, try them out. Um, and then uh, I didn't mind performing. You know, I, I didn't, it wasn't gonna be my dream so to, uh, to become this famed stand-up comedian so uh, or to even do it for for a living so i felt i didn't really fear, fear failure at all so i just kept doing it and i met cool people and then the people kind of keep you in it the community um to see them over and over again you know at your shows and stuff like that and uh, it's just it's just a lot it was a lot of fun i think that that's kind of you know where it's at uh where it was at for me i think maybe if i did it like seven or eight years i would get more jaded I'd be like oh driving, I'm, I'm driving. motel six <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> you know I, I remember doing a show we drove like a bunch of us drove four hours to albany to tell jokes in a bar and then drove four hours back like on the same night <laughs> i was like ooh, yeah i don't know if i want to do this all the time but i don't mind doing like you know popping around from club to club or from mic to mic or from show to show in, in the city. So in New York, yeah, which, you know, that can, it can, like a city like New York can absorb it. Yeah. But you're not going to, if you're living in Cincinnati, it's going to be harder. Right. You have right. To get and, in the car. Yeah. New York, I was, New York was the place to do it. And I happened to be working at this, that book at that time. And I happened to move to New York and it was just so easy to just like dive in 
to the world. How do you do it? You show up people. and you say, on an open mic night, you just put your name in the hat? Pretty much. Pretty much. There's a website called Bad Slava that has a list of open mics, and it's like multiple cities, actually. It's a very well-kept website um, for music and comedy open mics, and you just start going and see what works. And obviously, open mics are notoriously soul-crushing and terrible. You know, it's 30 comics in a room. None of them are listening. So you get, like, a quiet laugh from somebody. I was like, oh, that joke might work. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that story has been told a billion times by by stand-up comics out there. But uh, And you just keep doing it for, you know. And then what's the next level? You get through open mic and then, what, you get to do like a five-minute set or whatever, two-minute set? Uh, Well, now a lot of, of, I feel like a lot of comics are are starting their own shows. They produce kind of like reading series. Um, So they'll have like a monthly show or, you know, a bi-weekly show or a bi-monthly show. Um, and, um, you know, they'll, you know, trade spots. Um, and then the next step up is to, you know, try to get an audition at a club, you know, which is usually involves those bringer shows. Has, have people talked about bringer shows on this podcast? Never. They're like the be- This is like the worst. <laughs> this is like where you, uh, you get five minutes if you bring five to seven friends um, to, to the show to, mm-hmm. uh, to pay the two-drink minimum. And they're usually like really watered down drinks for like 10 bucks each. Um, and you know, they'll try to sell you food and all that stuff. So basically you pay to get up on the stage. Pretty well. Yeah. I mean, you're always paying. I mean, even at the open mics, you're paying for like a drink. Um, yeah, it's tough. It's, it's a tough gig. It's, it's tough. It Maybe tougher than writing. Well, I'm not sure. It's probably similar, similar in difficulty to, to, uh, to the writing game. But, um, but yeah, I have, fr- I have my friends, you know, my office buddies would just, you know, I knew they had money and you'd just be like predatory. You'd be like, oh, you want to come to my show? You want to come to my show tonight? And I feel, I feel bad for them. I, you know, I had my book launch in New York and some of them were there and I was like, who's been to a Brigger show with me? <laughs> you know, and obviously my wife raises her hand. And is like, I had to do that. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah. But, um, yeah, after a while, like, you know, yeah, I was getting to the point where I couldn't bring anybody anymore. So you'd have to find your own stage time. Um, yeah, and I was trying to break into the clubs. Did you ever have a moment where you were like, you know what, maybe this is it. Maybe I'm going to be a stand-up comic. Like, I'm going to, you know, it's going to catch on. It's tempting. I mean, it's definitely tempting. There's, there are aspects of it like, oh, you're, it's, you're not so alone. You know, you're, when you're doing it, you're, with, you're around people all the time, uh, even though it can, it can be isolating. Um, and then the writing jokes is just like, it feels easier than writing a, you know, a long novel. Is it more fun? It is more fun. See, I've been thinking about this lately. Why does it have to, why does it have to suck? Like, why does it have to be suffering? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? I know like it yields some glory at the end, but like, can't there just be, can it just be joyful? I know that there's some yep. struggle involved, but like, what, what is wrong with prioritizing fun and enjoyment in life? Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. Why at we got to be martyrs. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I think uh, most writers like the process, like when they're putting down sentences you know, during the morning and they've had coffee or something, which helps, you know, alter the mood into a more positive state. There's that moment. There are moments of joy, you know, in, in writing, right? It's kind of like runner's high, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe fewer. I don't know. I mean, the thing too, is it's like, not it's every a- 15 seconds. Like it is in standup when you're up there and it's yeah. going well, like, you know, it can be, and you can have that feeling like every day if yeah. you wanted to. Right. That's what I mean. It's like, you know, you're, especially you're working on a long form project. It's just, you're, you're just in a hole working on your project yes. for years Yes. with no feedback usually, you know, and, right. 
it's a, uh, I mean, you know, it's, I think it makes it all the more impressive of an accomplishment because of that, Thank you know, you. to, to oh. endure all that and to keep going and to, you know, be able to maintain the energy and commitment over the, you know, the time it takes to write a book. But, um, you think about like songwriting, mm-hmm. like what isn't like, like uh, Willie Nelson wrote like on the road again in like six minutes. So I'm like, I could see that. You know, what I'm I play the guitar, <laughs> and every once in a while I will write a song, and I will, and I realize it's not that hard. And like, <laughs> it didn't like, and like, I don't know why I'm in the country music space. But it's like yeah, I want to yeah. say like I heard like Dolly Parton wrote "I Will Always Love You" and Jolene on the same day. Wow. It's like, God, like two like masterpieces of see the short gratification is is a positive. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. What's the corollary in literature? I guess a poem. Like, uh, you know, you can crank out a poem in a day. Yeah, but there's not, there's no love. There's no, you don't get the love like right afterwards. Yeah. That's the thing with stand up. You tell a joke, it's like, you know, you get the love. You get the love every 15 seconds if it works. If it works. If it works. And then you can do that like several times a night, a few times a week. There's it's a, not a bad thing. No, but there is, I, you know, you talk about the love in, in comedy. Um, man, there's no ambiguity. Yeah. About whether or not a joke works. Right. They either laugh or they don't. Right. And right. I guess maybe some of it has to do with the performance and the energy that you're bringing. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that you delivered a joke and the end, just the energy that the audience brings. Right. I'm sure you've had the experience that you deliver a joke on one night and it kills. Right. And then that same joke in another context bombs. It's happening all the time in these, when I'm reading from this book, <laughs> you know, so there, there are sections where I read where if people have two drinks, if had two drinks, they like it more, you know, than the, than the. You know, if it's a more sober audience. So, uh, so the lesson is to get your audience drunk. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The two drink minimum helps. It helps. Um, no, but, uh, I think like, you know, I break down my novel writing kind of feeling is about novel writing in like the six year blocks is it usually takes like six ish or more. In this case, it took eight, but usually it's the first two years. I feel like I'm a genius. Like what a great idea. And then. The next two years I spent completely hating like what <laughs> what I was doing in the first two years. Maybe it's like two or three years of that hatred, just pure hatred on a daily basis. Like what did I do? How do I get out of this? And then after that period is passed and you're sort of like in a middling, kind of like detaching yourself emotionally, you're ready to send it out. And that's <laughs> that's kind of like the process. Uh, I like the beginning. And the, the ending is like, you know, even now I feel like if somebody told me to... Oh, you're, do you want to write a novel about stand-up, a stand-up comic and uh, do two and a half years of stand-up comedy and uh, spend eight years doing it? And I'd be like, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, thanks. What about, uh, like, how did it, I, I have to believe that doing that uh, performance, like night in and night out, getting up in front of people, exposing, like making yourself vulnerable yeah, and having to think on your feet. Yep. Having to perform, which is something that most writers, I don't think, uh, are necessarily inclined to do. No. Maybe there's a performative aspect to writing, but it's like the introvert's performative right. impulse. It's not like standing up in front of people. Readings can be torturous. Yeah. But you did it, and you put yourself through that crucible. Uh, I'm interested to know what it gave you, aside from the material you needed for your novel. Like, do you feel like you pulled something from that process that will serve you well in other aspects of your life or in ways that might have surprised you. Yeah. I mean, I think there are reasons why, 
you know, in all trades, when you have to do like presentations or whatever for your office job, they tell you, oh, well, why don't you try Toastmasters or taking a stand-up class? And a lot of people do stand-up classes. I would highly recommend that almost every author who has to do a reading take a stand-up class. I mean, I think like uh, doing comedy has taught me to be a better listener and you're listening while you're talking, right? You're, you're on stage, you're, give, you're doing your material, but you're listening to like what the audience is doing. And it's like this symbiotic process. Um, it's almost like you're, 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 it's almost like super hearing. Um, yeah. So when I, when I do readings now, I'm, all, I'm always like cognizant of like how the audience is taking the joke or taking the line. Do you work some of your material up there? Yeah. I mean, I think this, this novel has a lot of punchy stuff. So it's, it's, it has a lot of stand up joke type lines in it. It has lots of laughs per page. Um, or at least it's intentionally, the, the intention is that there are a lot of laughs per page. So, um, but I mean like, like you, I, obviously when you're reading, you're reading about comedy and there's jokes, right? right. but when you like are, you know, do you warm the crowd up? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I do have a few sort of pat kind of one, one liners to kind of loosen the crowd and kind of get, get them on my side to show them that I'm in command. I'm not nervous. I'm not fearful. And when, when there's a silence, it's intentional. You know that type of that type of thing. Um, th- these are all the little clues that I think an audience gets when somebody is when a co- comic is on stage. It's like, oh, the comic the comic is in control. You know, this is his time, and uh, you know, and if you don't show that, in a lot of, you know, writers are not naturally inclined towards it. They get up there and they just put their head in the book and just read and don't look up. Um, you know, I think you start to lose attention. You know, what about hecklers? You get some of that. Hmm. I don't think I, I don't think I ever got a heckler. Um, that was really, really serious. I mean, I, I recently I had like there was a there was a drunk person at a reading recently and that was making noise. And uh, <laughs> you got a heckler at a reading? At a reading? Yeah, it was in San Francisco. <laughs> Good for uh, you. In the mission, and uh, he wasn't a heckler. He was kind of a nice heckler. Yeah. But he was just like he was making commentary, you know, while while we were all reading. Um, you just try to like you try to make a joke out of it, but I, I don't think I was like there with my stand-up where I was like confident about doing crowd work. I, I think that ask. was kind of like the next that was the next step. Um, that's high wire. I mean, because that's is. really where you're, you know, you're uh, you're having to make it up right there. Yeah, I yeah, guess yeah, you yeah. might have some. I think like comics who are good at it, they must master certain like yeah. turns of phrase or moves or pivots. You, after a while, a lot of the the insults that people hurl probably can be reacted to right in a, in the same with the same like moves or whatever yeah i mean i think some of them are definitely like pre-prepared you know the whole you know oh where are you from and then like some joke about you know oh, oh i don't care about that place you know it's like an easy <laughs> laugh it's like uh where are you from kansas city oh yeah don't know anything about that so you know or don't nobody the place nobody cares about okay yeah <laughs> that that type of thing is it's like kind of an easy thing to do but uh, I'm surprised. I feel like most people, especially if you're working open mics and you're t- testing out material, I just feel like that's maybe one of the big, uh, like like things that people fear is like I'm going to get up there and someone's going to start fucking with me. Yeah, it doesn't happen that often. Um, you know, it pays to be prepared for it, but you can't really like it's you don't know what the person's going to say. You know, you just have to think on your feet. And I think that's like one of the, one of the, you know, things that I learned from comedy is, you know, you, you know, when I'm talking now or talking about the book, you know, I often try to, you know, 
say something surprising, like on, on the line. It's almost like you're writing jokes. You know, that's really all, all the joke is, is just like a turn of, you know, saying a word that somebody doesn't expect you to say, you know, at the end of a sentence. And you usually get some sort of reaction, whether it be, you know, a titter or, a, you know, a gasp or whatever, you know, and just that that reaction is sort of a conversation. You know, you realize that, you know, you're, you're, Material is, is connecting with people in some way, even if it's not like this huge laugh. Um, yeah, the more connection, the better, I think. And who are some comedians that you revere, especially having done it? Like, do you look at them the way that they uh, are able to control the stage? I think that's a part of it for me that I have, uh, I have great reverence for. Is somebody who just gets up there and they're just like an absolute control. Yeah. yeah and yeah, you can yeah. feel it. You know, yeah, and you know, you see, you see how pro they are. Um, you know, I always, I love David Tell, um, Dove David off. Uh, I kind of like the dark stuff, <laughs> uh, but I, you know, as a joke writer, I think Sarah Silverman's brill- brilliant. Uh, Chris Rock, Chappelle, you know, all the guys, all the guys that we we love. Um, Ali Wong, I, I really love um, because you know she speaks a lot to my background. Ronnie Chang, who used to be a uh, uh, the daily show, a daily show correspondent. He was in crazy rich Asians. He's, he's terrific. Um, Tig Notaro. I mean, I, I, I enjoy lots of comedy. I, I probably consume it more less now than I did back then, but you know, I was definitely like in a, in a total immersion state where I was, you know, listening to a lot of standups thanks to Mark, Mark Marin and you know, the nerdist and those podcasts, uh, just got me really interested in the scene. Yeah. Yeah. I, what do you make of all the, like, uh, what is it? The guy who directed the Joker, Todd Phillips. Is that who it is? Oh yeah. Turning where, a, where he's like, I, I, you know, I, I stopped making comedy. This is my like statement because it's too hard to make comedy now. Cause you're going to offend people or you're not going to be woke enough or nah, I, I think it's kind of ridiculous. And they just think there are always jokes that grow old and you have to kind of, um, you know, adjust to the times. Um, and adjust to figure out it's your job. It's your job to figure out what the audience finds funny. Right. So right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just, if it doesn't, if something's not working, it's time to make up something new, you know, did Todd Phillips, Todd Phillips did the hangover, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I personally, as an Asian American, I hate that character, Mr. Chow. So I mean, Ken Jong's, you know, uh, kind of like a criminal uh, moralists, you know, kind of all, all the Asian stereotypes, right. Or kind of ma- he's like a mashup of them. Um, so yeah, no sympathy for me. Right. I, although I mean, I'm curious about the Joker. You yeah. Know, I, haven't seen, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Yeah. I think like I said something on Twitter cause I pondered this. I think like one of the things I feel and have said before is that I have an impulse to be most forgiving of people who work in comedy when it comes to them saying something that might potentially offend or agitate precisely because it is comedy. Right. Um, and I think in particular, if you're working in cultural or political comedy, like it's the job of the comedian to, to test the boundary, right. To get up to that line right. and to sort of jab people. Right. Um, and so I've said that like, just like, I think I'm most, for, I'm, I'm really forgiving of comedians. Mm-hmm. If somebody's up there with the intention to make a joke, right. And they make the joke and, you know, I'm like, okay, they were just joking. Like, maybe it's not like the most uh, appropriate way of doing it, but I, I tend to be forgiving. I also recognize that I'm coming from a place of privilege. So I'm like factoring that in as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing that I've said is what you just said, mm-hmm. which is that 
um, you, you have to change with the times. Right. Like you can think back 50 years, the kinds of jokes that were okay to say on stage, words that were okay to use in public discourse. Mm -hmm. People change. Yep. Times change. You know, you have to change with it or you get left in the dust. Yep. I also believe that it's true that sometimes certain segments of the audience are ridiculously oversensitive. Yes. And it's like, dude, yes. fucking relax. No. Like they're making no. a joke. You know, you can't police every goddamn joke. And, and it will make it, um, I don't know, make it uh, unfun to try to get up there and, and do your job, make people laugh. If people right. are out there just throwing darts at everything you say. And right. Like, so recording comedy seller sets and then like posting them on Twitter and like yeah. breaking down the jokes. It's obviously that's no fun for the comic. Well, but. yeah. So it's like, but I think like the, the challenge of it intellectually for me is to say, well, this is true. You have to change with the times. Things are changing. People are becoming more, um, vocal in articulating boundaries, which yeah. is good. Yeah. So that's true. Mm -hmm. It's also true that certain segments of the audience are overdoing it. Yeah, I, I agree so you with have that to too. hold you have to hold like both truths and then somehow find like an equilibrium between the two. That's where I'm at with it. No, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think, you know, there was a time in the 90s where every comic had a rape joke or a joke about disabled people, <laughs> you know, and that was just like an automatic laugh. They don't work anymore. So, you know, you got to find something new. And plus, if you're going to a comedy club to, like, cr break down, you know, a comic, it doesn't make any sense either. You're going there to have, you should be going there to have a good time, have a couple of drinks, and laugh. If you don't find it funny, you know, don't laugh. <laughs> you know, don't come back. Right. Don't post, I mean, I wouldn't, I would say don't post it on Twitter. Don't, you know, don't take videos. Don't freak out and, you know, start, try to start some sort of viral backlash, you know. Uh, you know, also those comedy clubs are places where they're, trying out material it's you know they're working on their specials so to speak yeah so, it's like the first drafts yeah, and yeah like, exactly you say things the wrong way i mean it's like a, you know it's tough yeah. uh, i have empathy for somebody who gets up there like you watch like uh i've seen like videos or maybe it's documentary of like chris rock like working out material yeah and he's as accomplished as it gets right. in the field right and you're just seeing him just bomb yeah like oh and you're like oh like this is how it goes like this is how you do it you right. have to go up there and just fuck it up right and usually he gets I, i've heard I don't know. I haven't, I've been lucky enough to see him do one of his drop-in sets at the cellar, but I've, I've heard he just like, he, the persona drops away. He's not stalking the stage like he usually is. And he just sort of basically reads the joke, you know? Often, Damn. Yeah. Well, it seems to, whatever the process is, it seems to be working for him. Whatever. I mean, I, I admire the people that still do it. You know, God knows he doesn't have to. Same thing with like Sarah Silverman. She apparently still goes to Largo, you know, just randomly, you know, to do a little 45 minute you know, will disappear for 45 minutes, drop in, do 10 minutes at Largo and go on with the, her life. She doesn't have to, like she's got, a, you know, the bedwetter is becoming a musical next year. So, yeah, but it's a good way to like tune up and, uh, it's gotta be fun. I mean, shit, people are thrilled to see you. Yeah. You, if you've been doing it for that long, you, you know, you can be trying out new material, but you also know you have uh, like a whole like quiver full of arrows that work. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that when I was doing comedy, I, one night I saw Gilbert Gottfried, he was doing, doing his rounds. And it was just, it just struck me as very somewhat, somewhat sad. He was, he was basically, he was dressed down and he was doing his stuff and he's Gilbert Gottfried, you know, he's not like super famous. Nobody Didn't was he like get canceled though. I want to say he got canceled for something. He, I mean, he's a roast. Basically he was a roast comic. He did, he, he did that joke around nine 11 or after nine 11. That was like, he lost huge. his, like, he was like the Aflac duck. 
and then yeah, Affleck yeah, yeah. like canceled him. Yeah, yeah. Did did they cancel him? Like because of he said something controversial, or because yeah, like yeah, he's I, Gilbert Godfrey? I could be no. <laughs> I just don't like you. You got to get so. somebody more famous to be the duck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I you know it's hard yeah, to keep he, up. With but it all. he was like old jacket. He had like a backpack in New York Times and an Apple. You know, it's just like it, he was just doing doing his thing. Nobody was paying attention to him. Uh, I couldn't tell whether it was a great thing or a sad thing. Yeah, you know what I mean. Hey man, it, making content of any kind, being a creator, um, it's a tough road. It and is. Uh, I think I have reverence for anybody who has the courage to try it. And especially those who are willing to stick with it. Uh, I'm moved by people who like, especially the people who sort of like, you know, never reach the highest heights, but keep right. going. Right. Hopefully. And I think I'm maybe most moved by the people who are keep going and do that and are able to, um, feel fine about it like achieve a certain balance and um it doesn't matter necessarily that they right. got the huge special or became a sitcom star or whatever right um i guess maybe i don't know how many people like that there are but um it matters a little bit i think but you know a lot of it is like it's going to come out in the wash after you're gone yeah mm -hmm. and, and like just the people who like i like to do this this is how i make sense of the world I make a living doing this. I travel around. I make people laugh. Like, yeah, there are worse fucking things to do with your yeah. life. Yeah. Than exactly. go around making people laugh. It's not so bad. It's right. not so bad. If you can stay away from all the other troubles. Yeah. The, which the temptations. I guess, <laughs> guess you manage that, you know? Yes. I mean, I, you know, I write, I write about it in the novel a little bit, but it's mostly imagined. Um, I, you know, I, I tried to, I, I was a good boy. <laughs> I'll tell you this, what, I, what I've been thinking as I was uh, listening to you talk about how as like an Asian American comic, you get up there and there's like sort of this implied expectation from the audience that you're going to address your Asian-ness. Mm -hmm. You could do a math joke or something. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like white male comics, like, I feel like the, I feel like it almost might be savvy for a white male comic to get up there and to unpack being a white man. Yes. There are opportunities. There are so many opportunities right now. To, if you're a comic, to to pave new ground, I think. Yeah, like unpack it and like be self-critical and like you know like and make jokes. But I mean, come on, like it, let's. This should be a little bit more equitable, right? You know, right. So I'm just giving. If there's a comic listening, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure there are doing it right now. Just, and we just haven't seen it. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think it's like just like I think Aziz and Louis kind of missed opportunities to do great comedy around their scandals yeah I, I could not agree yeah. more and i um i feel like i'm sort of like stereotyping myself but i'm like the middle-aged white dude who loved the show louis yeah i fucking loved it great it, it was a great show i, I love that he like wrote emails you know that were misspelled to his fan base and <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah like, there was like something there was a moment for him in the culture where i was like oh yeah. this guy's like he's really great you know he's really it's self-investigating and funny and then but then i'll see right. on twitter especially among women, um, they'll be like, I always knew he was a creep. And I'll, then yeah. I'm like, oh, fuck, what did I miss? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, I, I have a blind spot. I didn't see it. I thought he was a good guy who's funny and like, you know, obviously flawed like all of us, but I didn't know he was like right. jerking off in front of people, cornering them in hotel rooms and right. stuff. Right. He did have a lot of jerk off jokes. Just and, not those, <laughs> not those jokes. No, but I've said this before on, uh, on this show, a friend of mine, um, who has a comedian in her family mm -hmm. and so was around comedians yeah. 
um, a lot at parties and stuff like years ago mm -hmm. told me that Louis did that. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of well known. And I was like, but I, but in my head when that was told to me, cause it was like, in the, she was like, Oh, he's at a party. And then like, I'm in the kitchen and next thing I know he's got his dick in his hand. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, he's an alcoholic. Right. Like, Oh, he can't handle his liquor. Right. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, I thought yeah. he was just like wasted and right, took right, his right. dick out. And I was like thinking it was funny, but he was sloppy. And right, right, right. I forgave it. I was like, Oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. didn't realize that it was like this fetish thing where <laughs> yeah. I don't even know how to process he was, it. He was all in on that particular move. Yeah, and I don't I don't know. I would have to have a like a shrink on the show who might have some experience with it. Like I don't know what that means. Like why would somebody want to do that? I have no idea. You know? Um but I am you know, I said I'm forgiving of comics. I'm I think I'm forgiving of human beings in general, particularly mm -hmm. those who are genuinely remorseful. Right. And who are like, you know, I fucked up. I'm going to try to make, make it better somehow. Right. And do it, right. do it right. If somebody right. comes at me in good faith with that, almost no matter what they've done, I, like there's room in my heart for that. Right. I like to think, you know, I suppose there are some things that are unforgivable or that would be really hard, but you know, shooting I mean. somebody in, on fifth Avenue might be. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like somebody who's like really like, you know, uh, psychotic or something. But right. I was hoping that what Louie would do as a fan of his show. Yeah. And like, I think maybe wanting like to see some, you know, healing or something. Mm -hmm. I was hoping he would come out and like really investigate himself because he was so good at it before. Yeah, with everything else in his life, with all fatherhood and yeah, and it's, he did. The, he he kind of did it. the exact opposite. Right. Well, he still has an opportunity to do it. I hope he does. I hope um, like I, I hope somebody's giving him good advice because I feel like too right. he's got a lot of friends who might be like, fuck it, bro. The culture's just, it's yeah, like, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. people don't know what jokes are right, anymore, you right, know? Right, right, right. But if he, uh, if he's got good friends who care about him and if he really wants to like actually attempt some kind of comeback as a creative person, he has to, in good faith, um, investigate that on stage and understand that what he did was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a, there's probably a classic, stand-up album that he's got in him about that i think um what do you think about like tig notaro is is famous because louis was in the crowd be when tig did that set about breast cancer right you know, four At days Margo. after yeah four days after you know she was diagnosed and it's kind of the same thing with let I me mean, I, I kind of expect louis to kind of go there and uh i think i hope he will i hope i, all, I, I hope all will. comics will go there yeah. Um, you know, I think that's what we maybe most respond to. I guess there are some comics who are just like, you know, they're joke makers. Right. Um, right. but the stuff that I feel like really transcends like that's that set that Tig did. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you can't really game that either. I think part of it too was just the timing of it and right. But, uh, I think, you know, it's the people who really, um, find a way to take the stuff of their inner lives and to make humor out of it kind of turn themselves inside out yep that stuff tends to hit the hardest yeah i mean i think that's what i was talking about earlier with the whole act of stand-up being an act of listening is like listening to the audience and i guess they, they missed an opportunity i think to listen to the audience and, and acknowledge what the audience sees which is this you know scandal-ridden person who you know does did what he did you know and it's hard and if you don't address it, then your the rest of your stuff's not going to be as funny because they're all waiting for you to address it, and they're not really listening to you because you're not acknowledging, you know, what they see. So, yeah. Well, I can talk about this for days. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm a huge admirer of um, what you did. Like you know, 
what you've been able to do over the past few years, considering all that you've had to deal with health wise, but getting out there, digging in, um, doing that experiential work, continuing to write, continuing to publish, publishing other writers, especially writers who are on their first book. Um, and just trying to make that positive difference is really cool. So I'm, uh, I don't know. I'm a fan. I congratulate you and I wish you well. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. This was a dream come true, by the way. I love this podcast. Love, love many podcasts, but you know, other people's up there. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, guys, that is Leland Chuck. His new novel is called No Good, Very Bad Asian, and it is out there now from C&R Press. You can find him online at LelandChuck.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle is at LChuck. No Good, Very Bad Asian, available now. Go get your copy. What a story, right? What a lot he has been through, and uh, he's... uh, He's still going. It's kind of inspiring. So Leland Chuck, no good, very bad Asian. Thanks to uh, Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. If you want to support the show, tip your server. The uh, way to do that is patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can also get a new Other People t-shirt. I mean, I don't know how new they are, but you can get an Other People t-shirt. Just go to otherppl.com, look in the left sidebar, get yourself a t-shirt. You might get recognized in public. Uh, what else? What am I forgetting? Oh, don't forget about the app. The Other People podcast has its own official app. It is free. Wherever you get your apps, the other people with Brad Listy app. Go search for it. You'll find it. It's free. It's a great way to listen. All right, yeah. So next time on the on the uh, program on the Other People podcast, I have Fiona Allison Duncan. That was an interesting one. We talked for a while, so stay tuned for Fiona, Allison, Duncan next time. I hope you're doing okay. Happy Thanksgiving. It's coming up. If you're going to be uh, traveling, hope, you know, hopefully the show can keep you company in transit. If you need to tune out your, uh, your, in-la- you know, your in-laws or your relatives or your family, just uh, put your earbuds in. I'm here for you. All right. <laughs>